and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, how many uh, ESG press releases do you get in a day, would you say? <laughs> all, all half of my inbox. You know, <laughs> I, I don't like making fun of PR people too much because it's sort of cheap. You know, journalists always whine about PR people. Mm-hmm. But half of my inbox is cryptocurrencies, experts who want to tell me about cryptocurrencies. And the other is people who want to tell me about some sort of thing with sustainable investing, a.k.a. ESG. Yeah, I kind of love how it's two extremes of the barbell, right? It's cryptocurrencies taking up a bunch of electricity and then at the other end, sustainable finance. But I wouldn't necessarily blame the PR people because there is this huge industry that has cropped up and grown around ESG. Uh, For those that don't know, it stands for environmental, social and corporate governance. And I think we've had something like $500 billion worth of money raised by companies and governments for ESG projects. We've had more than $800 billion flowing into ESG funds. And as our inboxes can attest to, we've had, you know, hundreds of new ESG funds launched recently. There is certainly a lot of money in it. I, and you're right. We can't blame the PR people. It's not their fault that there is just so <laughs> much money, marketing, funds. They're just going where, uh, you know, doing what the clients say. It's really not the PR people's fault. There is a big, uh, there is a very big push behind all things ESG both on the private side, companies wanting to make themselves eligible for ESG investing, green bonds, et cetera, just a huge part of this sort of a finance conversation right now. Yeah, but I'm kind of glad you brought up the cryptocurrency parallel because just like the crypto market, ESG is relatively new and it's sort of finding its footing. And there's been quite a lot of talk about how to align incentives, how to get definitions right, what exactly is a green investment. And in many ways, there's a lot of disagreement and it's still kind of like the Wild West. Totally. And, you know, there's still like there's a lot of ambiguity, it seems like. I mean, part of it is like, well, how much do you want to invest with your values? How much is it that using certain ESG screens, you can actually do better because in theory, the company operating with more sustainable practices could or should, some, according to some uh, practitioners, actually deliver better returns. What are the trade-offs? But I don't think like any of these answers are like settled science by any stretch. No. But today, in order to offset all the uh, the press releases that are floating out there, we are going to be focusing on, I don't want to say the downsides of ESG, but maybe areas of potential improvement. Um, that's probably a good way of putting it. And we are going to be speaking to Daniela Gabor. She's a professor of economics and macrofinance at UE Bristol, and uh, also a very vocal critic of ESG on Twitter. Daniela, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, So I guess my first question is, what's the purpose of ESG? Because it sounds kind of obvious, like we're going to pour a bunch of money into good or green projects that are going to change the world. But is it that you're supposed to be investing in good companies or is it that you're investing in companies and then trying to engage with them to change their behavior? 
So I would say that uh, my interest in ESG uh, comes from observing uh, the broader political context in which uh, ESG investment has a reason in which this wall of ESG uh, funds that you just described has sort of um, uh, come about. To describe the political context, I, I would like to start with a quote from a private equity lobbyist that was uh, discussing the Biden infrastructure plan. And he said something along the lines of, this is a very traditional government in spending on infrastructure plan. It's like an old funded through the government approach. And what we were uh, expecting was Biden to put private finance in the, in the driving seat, to partner with private finance through public-private partnerships, and to tap into the huge pools of capital, particularly ESG capital standing by and looking for a sort of sustainable investments and sustainable projects. And the way in which this complaint was framed, that Biden chose old-style government investment instead of a partnership with private finance, signals to me the importance of thinking about the rise of ESG and what is the purpose, uh, how should we think about uh, its limitations, through the lens of what I call macrofinance regimes, that is the configuration of policies and institutions used by governments, central banks, and private finance to design the low-carbon transition that is a, a transition towards a low-carbon e uh, economy. And I would guess since 2015, the year of the Paris Agreement and also the year of the Addis Abeba Financing for Development Conference, we have seen what I would describe as two broadly distinctive macrofinancial regimes that promise to generate investments in the order of about uh, USD 5 to 7 trillion annually that are necessary for the low-carbon future. Mm. And there is a big finance regime and a big green state regime that we so, uh, often discuss as a Green New Deal kind of arrangement. So when private equity companies and asset managers were complaining that Biden had abandoned about the Biden plan, they were complaining to me that they had abandoned this big finance regime that was dominant until then in global policy forums like the G20, the United Nations, in multilateral development banks, the Conference on Climate Change, the Global Investor for Sustainable Deve Development Alliance, uh, which was a consensus that private finance need to, needs to be in the driving seat for, for us to achieve the SDG and decarbonization commitments by, by 2030. So this is, I want to stop at this point because I just want to like really make sure we stress it. And this is super interesting. And so what you're describing is that for years, there has been this consensus among leaders that when they set out, say, like climate goals or other environmental goals, that there is a big role for the finance industry, for private money to be employed, directed in such a way that uh, it goes towards investments in all these areas, whether it's in technology or something like that. And perhaps some of the anxiety now as we think about when, I guess you could say, maybe Green New Deal thinking, although there is no Green New Deal, but Green New Deal thinking is much more about, let's just have the public fisc, let's just have public spending invest in this. And it's sort of like, I guess you could say it sort of cuts out the opportunities in some ways for private financial profit. Exactly. I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily cut them out because you could say, well, you know, uh, private finance could still buy the government, the sure. bonds issued by governments to finance the green carbon transition, it definitely sort, sort of goes against this idea that private finance needs to be in the driving seat, an yeah. idea that, that comes with the ESG push over the last five to seven years. 
So what's the implication of that? Are you suggesting that as more of these projects are undertaken by governments, does that mean that the ESG pool is going to start shrinking or there's going to be fewer opportunities or is it still just going to um, keep growing as we described in the intro? That's that's a very interesting question in the sense that it very much depends which avenue governments will decide to take, whether mm. they go for big, big public investment which I, I somehow doubt. I think uh, the Biden infrastructure plan is, is somehow an, an oddity in sort of uh, in high income countries. I would guess, especially after the COVID-19 crisis, uh, there is because we still rely very much on this powerful macro fiction of the last 40 years that governments have limited fiscal space and that it should not rely on independent cent- central banks to maintain borrowing costs low. Then the idea, the question becomes, if governments cannot produce the trillions in green investment, these have to come from somewhere else, and that will be private finance. And that's where you get the sort of back of the envelope calculations that you were described earlier, and they run something like this. You have 30, 380 trillions US dollars uh, in financial assets worldwide, around 100 trillion uh, belong to institutional investors and asset managers. And probably 30 trillion, more or less, have already a sustainability label, label attached to them. So five to seven trillions annually, it's not that large, but what it requires, and I think this is very important to bear in mind, what it requires is for private public finance to crowd in private finance. In other words, for the state to help private finance uh, invest in infrastructure projects. And this is, I think, an an important political project that goes hand in hand with the rise of ESGs because it says that when the state has to de-risk investments, particularly infrastructure investments for private finance, and that goes in two steps. One is to allow private finance to identify sustainable asset classes via ESG metrics, and then to de-risk private flows into these ESG sort of sustainable assets, right? And to give you the example of the G20 infrastructure as an asset class, which the Biden administration is already supporting uh, through its uh, international climate finance plan. The idea in the G20 infrastructure as an asset class is that the private sector does not build ports or high-speed trains or renewable energy plants or hospitals because there are very important risks to projects' cash flows. There might be sufficient demand, there might be currency depreciation, climate risks, fossil fuel subsidies for the poor. So what the state needs to do is to step in and to de-risk the, the uh, public-private partnerships, so these partnerships between the state and private finance, by assuming risks that demand falls or that future governments might increase policies like minimum, wa- minimum wages or new climate regulations, such as an increase in, in carbon price. And I think this, to me, this turn towards the state as an instrument of de-risking for private finance explains to a significant extent the dramatic growth that we have seen in sustainable finance products in the last years. It's a a global political appetite for a market-driven approach to development and to climate. This is this is super fascinating already. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, like one of the themes that we talk about on this podcast uh, a lot is like, are we sort of like entering a, I guess, post neoliberal uh, period in thinking about the economy? And we've talked about it a lot 
with monetary and uh, fiscal policy and this idea of handing off control of the economy from the technocrats at the central banks to the politicians uh, and the government. But we haven't really explored it from like the climate angle, but it really uh, is the same conversation. It really dovetails with this very nicely, this idea that, yes, there were these climate priorities that many uh, large governments and large companies had set out, but it was very much done within this framework of, yes, but it's we're going to it's we're going to turn it into a market opportunity. And so this choice, as you as you put it, this choice to de-risk the projects of sustainable finance for the private sector is what is the sort of like seed or the kernel for what is this omnipresent boom in, I guess, ESG investment vehicles. Yes, I, I would very much agree in the sense that uh, I think if you if you trace the, the importance of ESG in general is that it, it is a private taxonomy for identifying green or sustainable assets mm. and in a sense distinguishing them from, from dirty assets, right? There are a couple of issues to consider there. I think one is that although we tend to applaud in some ways the fact that technocratic central banks are at least working closer with governments in order to design, say, the green transition or to to uh, respond to the COVID-19 pandemic, to me the question is when government technocrats sort of take over, do they take over to design public investment in green infrastructure and green industries or do they take over to design and to negotiate uh, de-risking in public-private partnership contracts. And there are very different fiscal implications for both. And in this one of the papers that I've written on what I call this Wall Street consensus, I look at the hidden fiscal costs of de-risking, and they can be quite significant. Uh, We have examples in the European Union. We have examples in countries in the global south, like like Nigeria or Ghana, where uh, we can see that it it doesn't sort of... relying on the private sector to drive the sustainable agenda doesn't mean that the state is not putting fiscal resources on the line. It is in a sense, and the the risk to me there is that it sort of privatizes profits and it socializes loss. Daniela, can you explain that a little bit more? How does the government de-risking the space actually result in fiscal expenditure? So let me give you, uh, for example, the, the example of Ghana's Sankofa offshore gas project, where the state signed a public-private partnership contract with a couple of French companies. And in that in PPP contract, there is a a very clear specification of who assumes what risks. And uh, the state assumes, for example, in this contract, demand risk in the sense that it guarantees a level of cash flows for the private investor and for the private operator. In the case of this uh, Ghanaian project, because the state agreed to the risk and uh, uh, demand, or in other words, to provide a a guarantee, then according to the IMF, it now pays about 500 million annually for power power generation capacity that it cannot use because uh, the infrastructure, the grid is not uh, uh, performant enough to sort of absorb this. And there are uh, many other examples in PPP contracts everywhere because uh, the the logic is if you want to direct or to escort private finance into sustainable assets, you need to change the risk-reward profile, right, to align it better with their uh, preferred risk-reward profile. Then the state uh, says, okay, I will guarantee a certain level of demand. I will pay or uh, if uh, a future government decides to, for example, increase minimum uh, wages or if it decides to put a carbon price, 
the state absorbs some of the risks of the private investment in order to ca- guarantee a constant stream of, of cash flow. Well, why is this not just a problem of making these guarantees better, demanding more, demanding, uh, you know, setting the standards for what the projects need to accomplish? I mean, it seems like it's it's easy to imagine bad projects where the state comes in and create some buffer, de-risks it for the private sector, and then the private sector doesn't deliver. Why not just get better at making sure the private sector delivers better if it's going to be eligible for the sort of uh, guarantee, the backstops of the state? I think that's a that's a very legitimate question. And uh, historically, the critique towards this de-risking PPPs has come from from the empirical reality in the European Union and in, in countries around the world that have imp- uh, used PPPs for infrastructure investment. Sorry, remind us what PPPs stand for again? A public-private partnerships, right? Of right? It, it is the kind of yeah. it is the kind of arrangement that BlackRock, for example, uh, called for the Biden administration to use in order right. to involve right. the private sector in infrastructure investment. And the experience with PPPs in Europe and elsewhere is in general an experience of a lot of co- very high costs for the state that would have, in other words, that it would have been cheaper if the state did it by basically uh, spending directly as the Biden administration plans to do with the, its infrastructure plan. So that's one issue. Uh, it, it has been very costly for, for the public purse. And I guess the second issue is, uh, as you um, Describe it, Joe. Well, maybe we can find a better way of governing these projects to make sure that the distributions of risk works better. And the World Bank has done a lot of sort of efforts into that direction. But uh, to, to my mind, uh, we haven't had yet a, a successful or many successful examples where, particularly in the global south, but also in Europe, where this uh, distribution of risks work, works better for the public purse. That's one thing. And the second one, which for uh, the Euro- Euro- European audience, perhaps it resonates better, is that once you organize public services through PPPs, then basically you're saying that the users have to pay a fee in order to access them. And that is the case for highways. That is the case for trains, but it's, the, but it's also the case for health services, for education, for nature as an asset class, the idea is to use these PPPs everywhere. So in a sense, there is also a question of the public good here, whether the government governments around the world are not equipped to provide or to meet the social contracts with its citizens by providing good quality public services uh, through public investment as opposed to imposing user fees and, uh, and the risking PPP right. uh, investments there. The more important sort of the bigger issue, and this brings us back to the, the way the, the topic of ESGs, I think there is also a question of systemic greenwashing that, that arises with this kind of de-risking paradigm. I wanted to I wanted to pick up on exactly this point, because you mentioned this idea of the technocrats stepping in uh, and de-risking ESG. And Joe described how one of our big themes for the year is this idea of a bigger role for the government um, in terms of fiscal stimulus and everything else. But another theme or a sub-theme of that, I should say, is that the devil is in the details, right? And even if you agree that the government should actually do more, designing that policy can be fraught with loads of disagreements and it can be very difficult and maybe even not as efficient or productive as it should have been. So how is that playing out in the ESG space? 
So I would say in the ESG space, it plays out. And I think the, the devil is in the technocratic detail is very important. It's, it's, it's cru- crucial. Is uh, who decides or according to what rules or taxonomies, we call them taxonomies in this space, according to what taxonomies do we decide whether investments and products are green or, or, or dirty? And there is broad agreement in regulatory circles that industry-led ESG approaches open the door to systemic uh, greenwashing. That is, in a sense, maybe if I give you the example of Total, the French oil and gas company, because I think it's a, a powerful uh, example. If you take Sustainalytics, which is one of the ESG, which is one provider of ESG uh, uh, ratings. Sustainalytics rates Total as having ESG uh, risks at, at a medium level. Uh, it rates Exxon high and Chevron uh, as uh, having severe ESG risks. And if you look at Total, well, you'd say it has a nature-based solution unit that promises to invest in natural carbon sinks in order to sequester CO2 from its operations, right? However, if one looks closer at what Total has been doing over the last few years, then this ranking of uh, medium ESG risks looks to me a lot like greenwashing. For example, in Congo, Total wants to exploit the uh, oil there, and it says, well, uh, in order to compensate, we will create a natural carbon sink of 40,000 hectares. But this involves first destroying a local natural savanna ecosystem and replacing it with non-native trees, uh, I think acacia trees, that can be commercially exploited. So if you're an institutional investor, right, and you hold total shares or bonds, you can say, well, this is a company that is carefully planning its transition out of fossil fuels because Sustainalytics ESG ratings tells me so. But what I see is that Total probably uses its green finance uh, ratings in order to, as a cover, to burn more fossil fuels while destroying local forests for commercial exploitation. And I think that brings me to the idea of this double materiality that we, that not we, but regulators discuss when they talk about uh, taxonomies of uh, green and dirty finance. And the idea of double materiality is that the, the climate crisis poses risks for institutional investors, right? And in this case, Total looks, look, looks less risky for the institutional investor because of its sustainalytics ESG rating. But... When that investor decides to include Total in his portfolio, what it does, in fact, is it lends to a fossil fuel company that is worsening the climate crisis. So Total's actions in Congo are making the climate crisis worse. And that is the the idea of double materiality that has been at the core of regulatory debates. And I I don't think it can be solved by relying on private metrics like ESG. It needs a public taxonomy. It needs the, 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 the technocrats to say this is green, uh, or this is sustainable and this is not. I just want to very briefly, this is so weird because I have like this very brief story, which is like I studied abroad in uh, spring of 2000 in Geneva. And that was like the peak of like neoliberal optimism and the world is all going to be great and NGOs and stuff. And I actually uh, did a like little paper for like my semester on tensions that were emer- would emerge between at the time the Kyoto Protocol about uh, climate change and the Convention on Biological Diversity and exactly what you described. And I never thought I would think about that like little <laughs> like paper that I wrote at the end of my semester of my sophomore year in college about that. But I'm glad to see that uh, actually 21 
or yeah, 21 years later, that that is actually relevant. And I kind of understand that tension between decarbonization and damaging sort of natural ecosystems. I guess that's just a comment, but I'm not. Thank you for bringing that up. I never thought I would think about that again. Thank you, Joe. Yeah. Yes. I, I guess regulators think, think about this on a sort of more sustained basis, but maybe you should send them your essay, Joe. Uh, I'm going to come in <laughs> with a question now, um, please, which is, please. <laughs> which actually, I'm just going to repeat my first question because I, I think this gets to the point Danielle is making about you know, the need for someone to decide what actually is green and what isn't, I think it comes down to confusion over exactly what ESG is supposed to be. So getting back to that first question, is it supposed to be that you're investing in good companies or projects, or is it supposed to be that you're engaging with, you know, maybe polluting companies in the hopes that they change their behavior? I don't think we've figured that out yet. I, I think it depends who you ask, right? I think for for uh, governments and, and regulators in general, the idea is, and you can think about the European Union Sustainable Finance Initiative and the taxonomy that comes with it. The idea is that they would like investors to think about the ways in which their uh, lending to uh, companies may have an environmental impact or may have or, or, or may reproduce or accommodate corporate practices in uh, sort of social and, and governance areas that are not aligned with the, with the public standards. So, so to my mind, for regulators, it is important to accelerate the shift in financial flows away from carbon activities towards green activities. Now, what does that mean in practice? And that goes to your second question is, uh, should we rely on, on these investors to sort of try to discipline corporations? I think that's a more difficult question to answer because it is true that the, we have seen experiences every here and there, and there is a lot of public pressure from civil society organizations to make sure that, for example, BlackRock flexes its uh, muscle uh, in order to make sure that the companies where it's a, a shareholder or where it holds shares on behalf of its uh, investors, improve their practices. But to me, the question that raises then is if investors have to assess the ESG behavior on the basis of private ratings, is it possible to have arbitrage mm. in, in the sense of you can go and choose a high ESG rating from whichever provider gives it to you and there are some perverse incentives in there, and then you don't have to do very much, right? And, and as somebody who believes that the climate crisis is very real, I, I am concerned about the idea that we, we have to rely on, on private financial uh, institutions in order to drive our climate agenda and, and to ensure that corporations go towards uh, low carbon activities. Awareness of climate change, discussion of climate change these days is at extraordinary levels, it's talked about all the time, literally every day, pretty much. How much of that has been driven by the fact that profit-motivated companies have had an incentive to put this out in the public consciousness? I mean, you mentioned uh, BlackRock. You know, there's numerous companies that see uh, big dollars in this. Had it not been for the huge uh, profit motive, could it be possible, in your view, that in the year 2021, we wouldn't be talking about climate as much? 
I think we have to recognize that, that private financial institutions have taken on the sustainability agenda in, in a sort of comprehensive way. And, and it, it, to, to some observers, it has been surprising. But I, would, I guess sort of the bigger public pressure comes from, you know, young citizens everywhere in the world mobilizing in the Fridays for Future and governments responding to this public pressure to act on climate. So I, I wouldn't say that it is the private financial uh, sector that sees profit making opportunities that has been driving it, but they certainly are responding to what they see as a future where the state might possibly become much stronger in flexing its green regulatory muscle. And, and here where the question of greenwashing becomes even more important, because I can see that in the near future, governments will, will go away from or will move beyond what we have now as the status quo, which is in the central bank's uh, task force for financial disclosure, for example, the, the status quo is we have to ask for disclosure of climate risks and for disclosure of exposures. Of, okay, but I guess a year from now or two years from now, if you look, for example, at the European Central Bank, who is undertaking a review of its uh, monetary policy operations, you could see a, a, a state that says, I am going to increase capital requirements on the assets you're holding, or I'm going to subsidize green assets by uh, reducing capital requirements or reducing haircuts uh, on the collateral that uh, banks are using in order to borrow from central banks. So in a sense, the, the rise of ESG is, is not simply about profits, but it's also about a, a strategic positioning to respond to what I think is very possible, a future where the central banks in particular and regulators are taking the question of greenwashing more significantly and the question of green uh, carbon bias in their own, own operations more seriously. Because that's a future where if you are not able to provide some sort of green label for the assets that you're holding, it might be much more expensive to hold them or you might end up with a lot of stranded assets. So how do you actually build a consensus around green labels and the actual definition? Because it does feel like we are in this weird moment where a lot of governments have recognized that climate change is a concern uh, and clearly something needs to be done about it. But there does seem to be very, very little official consensus around what exactly those policies should be and what a green investment should actually look like. Yes, I, that is a, a trillion dollar question in some ways because it points to the political difficulties in agreeing mm. on, say, a global level. But even if you look at the European Union, at the European Union level, the European Union for a while thought of itself as a leader in the green finance agenda, particularly because the Trump administration wasn't interested in participating, right? So they said, okay, we'll come up with a public taxonomy, the sustainable finance taxonomy. This will identify activities that are sustainable, and then we will use, we will take this at a global level and create some form of coordination that says this is a public standard of green, and it's it's not supposed to be a public standard of brown because the European Commission has sparked the question. Oh, sorry, what is what are dirty activities? It, it sort of doesn't deal with it for for now, but at least it says this set of activities are green. But if you look at the political debate and negotiations around the uh, uh, European taxonomy over the last couple of years, 
your question, Tracy, becomes very relevant because what we have seen is conflict between member states of what kind of activities should receive the label green. And, and most recently, civil society organizations that were involved walked out because the European Commission, at the pressure of several, several member states, said that it was contemplating including natural gas, which is a fossil fuel, as a sustainable activity. And that is sort of stretching it by miles uh, in terms of credibility of a, of a public taxonomy. And that is, is a strategic opening, I guess, for, for private ESG ratings, because, uh, you know, at least private finance can produce some, ra some ratings and some risks. And yeah. Uh, if you have uh, in-house ESG desks, and most uh, large institutional investors would have them, you can do a lot of due diligence. So in a, I'm not very optimistic that there will be a, a sort of public, global public standard. This is super interesting to me. I mean, I keep seeing in this conversation parallels between thinking about sustainability and climate and the environment with the discussion of, say, like inflation and labor and the handoff from central banks to uh, governments. Because, you know, I'm thinking about like in the one of the critics of sort of like post-Keynesian economics and people will say, well, you know, like maybe our maybe the traditional models for forecasting inflation are really terrible, but at least we have models. At least we have models. And, uh, you know, that's sort of the critic. At least we have something that on paper looks very elegant about some trade off between employment and inflation. And it kind of feels like there's like something similar going on with uh, thinking about uh, sustainability where you could say, OK, well, uh, the private sector's matrices for thinking about what's sustainable, they don't really work. They're not very good, but at least they exist. And at least there is something on paper that everyone can look at. Whereas when we try to like get to something that's like seemingly more democratic, we know that the existing models don't exist. But uh, sort of uh, governments have a harder time even putting something on paper, even if what the private sector makes doesn't work. Does that make sense? That that parallel? I mean, it does to me in the sense that this is in the in the case that you described around inflation, we are seeing sort of old orthodoxies dying, yeah. so kind of slow for our taste. Whereas in in the sustainable finance space, there is a new orthodoxy emerging, but the political momentum or the, the ability of, of uh, elected politicians to provide public solutions is not, has not sort of materialized yet. So to me, in a sense, the question of will we have a lot, of, a lot more ESG over the next years? Yes, definitely a lot more. Yeah. There will be, I guess, better, at least for the European Union, the European Union now has a, a directive for disclosure where if you want to sell financial products as uh, environmental or social, you need to provide a narrative of what they call principal adverse impacts or pies. I think it's quite funny that, that they are described like that. But what they say is, well, you need to convince us that your ESG products are true, truly ESG. So there is more scope for sort of monitoring closely the, the extent of greenwashing so you don't buy ESG ETFs that have a Chevron or, or Total in them. But whether that is ambitious enough for the scale of the low carbon transition, I am a bit skeptical. Right. Well, Daniela, it's sort of been a uh, disheartening subject to talk with you about, uh, but I suppose it is an important topic and this idea that even though we agree something needs to be done on climate change, we haven't actually agreed on the individual policies is 
very, very critical to actually doing something about it and, and getting it right. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. It was a pleasure to bring uh, not so good news, but uh, there is always optimism. Yeah. <laughs> Some reality. That was great. That was the best, most interesting conversation I've had about ESG ever. And I, in, yeah. in all seriousness, and it's actually really helping me like think about this. And I really do think the sort of like parallels and the expectations of the sort of uh, last several decades and how that's informed our thinking on financing climate initiatives. It's just like a very useful framing. So that was great. Great. Thank you. So, Joe, I think the fact that we managed to have an interesting conversation about ESG is sort of an accomplishment in its own right, because a lot yeah. of these, <laughs> sorry, a lot of these takes are really repetitive, though, and sort of make the same point over and over and over and are very press releasey. But you're absolutely right. There are tons of overlaps between what's happening in ESG right now and that big theme of, you know, the handover to governments overall. Yeah. You're just thinking about like this expectation that's existed for so long that like markets must play a role that like sure governments can have initiatives and goals and endeavors and all that stuff, but that, you know, ultimately markets must be our vehicle to get there and how embedded that is. And then when you like sort of like, OK, we're going to like address climate change, we're going to have this uh, backstop then for market uh, investors, and then we're going to have this burgeoning moment. It really makes sense why ultimately that led to our clogged inboxes, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in the meantime, it does really feel like we are sort of in this awkward phase where we have a patchwork of regulations, yeah. which leads to a bunch of different incentives. And I have to say, one of my favorite examples of that, um, I think it was from Citigroup back in 2019, maybe, but they were looking at funding costs for European energy companies, and they found that yeah. they were on average more expensive than U.S. energy companies because European investors cared more about ESG and were punishing the European energy companies. So that's like a skewed outcome, right? The yeah. U.S. energy companies who are doing less uh, for clean energy get rewarded while the European companies who are actually trying to do something end up getting punished because Europe and the U.S. are sort of on different speeds or different levels when it comes to ESG. You know, one of the things when we talked to Stephanie Kelton about MMT and the, mm. one of the points she made, which I think is very powerful, is not that like it changes the politics per se because different political factions have different priorities, yeah. but we can have a more honest debate if we sort of recognize that the constraints on government spending aren't what we were told. And so you can sort of like tell this story. And Daniela basically said it where if everyone believes that, OK, there is this sort of like strong limit to what governments can spend, then you basically have to create a big role for private capital in financing uh, uh, sustainability initiatives and private markets. But if you if you remove that expectation and you sort of say, you know what, the government actually has a lot more uh, fiscal flexibility than we thought, you could start to conceive of investments into sustainability, into climate that are totally public focused, where there's not as much fear of like, oh, where, where is the money going to come from? And I do think you see this shift then, which, you know, you get from like this sort of like the ESG thinking 
to the Green New Deal thinking, which is yeah. very much about just put it on the government's balance sheet. And you can see then why private actors would be very anxious about it. You know, there's BlackRock on one hand, and then there's Greta, the teenager talking about climate on another hand. But <laughs> you could kind of make the argument that it isn't this sort of like continuous thing. It's actually like a very like big break in sort of like rethinking it. And the sort of like the Greta vision is much more threatening to all the money in the space. The teenager talking about climate. That's how you describe yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, like, it does feel like it's a break, right? Like, it's like a yeah, different no, thing I, than Larry Fink talking. about. I totally climate. agree. And the interesting thing now is going to be wa to watch um, what actually happens to the ESG industry in private finance that has cropped yeah. up. So, you know, do they partner with governments um, in the way that Daniela was describing or do they start shrinking and these hundreds and hundreds of new funds find themselves squeezed out by public investment? Or does some fund just pay Greta a bunch of money and we get a Greta ETF? <laughs> uh, that would actually work, wouldn't it? You could even have Greta as yeah. the ticker. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Well, on that note, uh, should we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow our guest on Twitter, Daniela Gabor. She's at Daniela Gabor. And follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts under the handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening.